small church. Thank you. The last six chapters of Daniel, however, are prophetic and contain four major visions that were given to Daniel regarding the future, that is, the future from his day. Those four visions are found in chapter 7, the first one, the second one, chapter 8, the next one, chapter 9, and the last one in chapters 10 through 12. And tonight we look at the first one in chapter 7, which is a sweeping panorama of events from Daniel's day up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, one proof of the Bible's authenticity is the fulfillment of prophecy. The minute details that are found in the book of Daniel, which have been, and in some respects still will be, fulfilled, are evidence of the fact that there is intelligence behind this book that supersedes human intelligence. These details tell us that there is a sovereign God who is in control of history and who, may I say, weaves together the events of history so that they fulfill what he says that they will. And those events eventually come out to his ultimate end and purpose. As we look at chapter 7, we notice a new name introduced to us. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Well, who is Belshazzar? There was a time, in fact, there was a long time when historians asked that question. And they said, well, here is proof that the book of Daniel is uh, not the word of God because uh, there is never recorded in history a Belshazzar who was the king of Babylon. And so liberal critics of the Bible use this name, this identity, to attack the Bible's credibility as being historically reliable. However, it is the critics who in the end have become ashamed, as they always do eventually, because in fact it has been discovered now that there was a Belshazzar in the history of Babylon. Let's back up just a little bit, though, and remember that we have been talking primarily about King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon for over 40 years, the greatest of the kings of, of uh, Neo-Babylon, the latter stage of Babylon's history. However, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. Following his death, his son reigned in his place, his son's name was Evil Merodach. This man is recorded in the Bible in two places. His name is found in 2 Kings chapter 25 and in Jeremiah chapter 52. Evil Merodach did not have a long reign, just two or three years before he died. But uh, he is noted because he is the one who released the Jewish king Jehoiachin from imprisonment and gave him certain rights as a person of royalty and showed kindness to Jehoiachin. Uh, the fact that he did this has been discovered not only in the Bible but in tablets that archaeologists have uncovered at the gate of Ishtar uh, right there at the ancient city of Babylon. That is, this deed is not only recorded in biblical history but in secular history as well. Now, this man died because he was murdered by his own brother-in-law, 
who then reigned in his place. His name was Nerigleser. He uh, reigned for four years. He also is named in the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 39. He is sometimes called Nergal Sharizer as well. But he died after just a brief time on the throne, four or five years, and his son, a young son, was placed on the throne in his stead. His name was Labishai Marduk. Now this man, uh, this young person, uh, was assassinated shortly after he was placed on the throne, assassinated by those around him in the court. And so the reign then went to one of the assassins whose name was Nabonidus. He was the last king of Babylon. He reigns beginning in 556 B.C. and was uh, officially the king until the end of the empire when the Medes and the Persians conquered it. However, Nabonidus was not a man who enjoyed the role of king. He would rather be away from Babylon than be there. In fact, history records that there was one stint of 14 years when he didn't even show his face in the capital city. Well, obviously somebody had to be in charge in the city of Babylon. And so he appointed his son to be co-regent with him. And so they reigned together for most of that time. Uh, three years after Nabonidus became king, his son, Belshazzar, was appointed to reign with him, and Belshazzar was the one who took the official duties in the city of Babylon. And so we have uh, the record here that the first year of Belshazzar is the time that Daniel received this particular vision, this revelation from God. And so the date is 553 B.C. Now this vision really falls easily into three parts, and that's the way I want to approach it tonight as we think about four beasts and a future kingdom. The first part of the vision is the beasts from the sea, found in verses 1 through 8. The general scene is described for us in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. He mentions here four winds of heaven. The word winds can also read spirits. So there are some Bible commentators who take this to understand that, that these were either angels that God unleashed to stir up people, or that these were demons that were at work. There are others who take the concept of winds in a uh, more symbolic way as representing simply God working in history. We do find the same term used, it would seem, of angels in Jeremiah 49 and 36. And a similar phrase is used in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 5. At least we can say this with confidence here, that God was allowing certain forces to play upon the nations. The great sea that is mentioned, uh, if taken literally, is the sea of of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Daniel sees this great body of water whipped up. But the Mediterranean Sea and the idea, the concept of the sea, is used also symbolically in scriptures to speak of the nations of the world, uh, especially Gentile nations. And so what is 
probably in view here. Daniel is seeing the Gentile nations of the world in turmoil. Humanity is in turbulence. There is upheaval and distress among the nations. And in the midst of all of that, he sees four beasts that come up out of the sea. Now remember, these beasts are symbolic. They represent something. The first beast is described to us as like a lion. He had the wings of an eagle in verse 4. He says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And so we have this uh, creature with uh, a lion-like creature with wings of an eagle. Uh, A lion has throughout human history, stood for royalty. Wings would speak of swiftness or of speed. And so we see here a a personage of royalty who was noted for speed and for his strength. But then something strange happens. The wings are taken away from it and it stands up like a human being and it says a human mind is given to it. Now, although Daniel does not identify for us here what the lion represents, we know from comparing chapter 2 where a parallel vision is given. There you recall it was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar and he saw this great statue. We know that this lion represents Babylon and especially King Nebuchadnezzar. And when it speaks about his wings being plucked and a human mind being given to this beast... It may have to do with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, humiliation before God when God caused him to become insane for those seven years. And as a result of that, he humbled himself before God. And uh, perhaps, and I like to think did, come to faith, genuine faith in the true God, the God of Daniel, the God of Israel. Now following the lion, there came a bear out of the sea. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And so now we have a successor kingdom. This is identified, not in this particular chapter, but by comparing other scriptures, especially Daniel chapter 2, This is identified as Medo-Persia. The union between those two peoples was not an equal one. The Persians were stronger, thus this bear is seen as not being balanced, it is off balance. A bear is known for its strength. Unlike a lion, which is noted uh, for speed, a bear is more lumbering. It is nonetheless very ferocious. It is an animal that conducts itself with less grace than does uh, a lion. And so all of this symbolically represents the kind of a nation that the the Medes and the Persians developed. It was a nation that uh, was very ferocious and it conquered widely. When it says here, rise and devour much meat, the idea is that as a nation it, it expanded and took in other peoples and did so very cruelly, I might say. Following the bear, there is a leopard that comes out of the sea. It says in verse 6 that it had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And once more, we know from comparing scriptures 
that this beast represents Greece, which was the major Gentile power in that part of the world that followed the Medes and the Persians, it conquered Persia. Uh, the wings speak again of swiftness, and of course a leopard is known for its swiftness uh, as well. And if you look at history, you find that the swiftness speaks of Alexander the Great, the leader of Greece, who with amazing speed for his day, conquered all of the known world. And it said when he was 33 years of age, he sat down and wept because there was no more world to conquer. Now the four heads will be explained as we get into uh, more about Greece, especially in chapter 8, and so I'm going to leave that. But the four heads do have a significance. And then there's a fourth beast, and this is the one that seems to capture Daniel's attention. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Now that sounds rather violent, but actually the language is not that violent. It, it really means that it, this little horn came up and sort of pushed its way in, causing the others by that force of action, the natural force of its own growth, to be uprooted. And it says, Behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And so we have a dreadful, terrifying, strong beast that is not further described to us. Probably this beast incorporated elements of the first three beasts. Because each of these kingdoms, to some degree, incorporated aspects of its predecessor. And so this fourth and final Empire, which we know now to be Rome, incorporated certain aspects of Babylon, of Media Persia, and of Greece in itself. The most prominent feature in this particular vision uh, is the appearance of the ten horns. And then that one little horn, as it is described, that uproots three, leaving a remainder of eight altogether. Now, you can go to Revelation chapter 13 sometime on your own, and you will see another vision recorded with a beast coming out of the sea, which relates to this. It is there the Apostle John receiving a vision as he was on the Isle of Patmos, and in his vision he sees more identi identification and information regarding this little horn. This little horn is the, the personage that we generally call the Antichrist, who will appear in the last days. We'll get into that a little more uh, in a few moments. And so we have the first part of this vision, the sea raging and out of that sea then coming successively, not all at the same time, but successively, these four beasts that represent to us empires, Gentile empires. Now it's interesting to, to consider the contrast between this explanation of the four empires and the one in chapter 2. In chapter 2 you notice that there is an emphasis upon the 
parts fitting together. There's the head. Then there's the, uh, the shoulders and the stomach and the thighs and the legs. And it, it's all a part of the same thing. But here you see the emphasis on the diversity of the four empires. Uh, also, you find in the statue vision uh, the intrinsic value of these empires given. There's gold, there's silver, bronze, and iron, and then iron mixed with clay, a decreasing value. But nonetheless, there is a value given to them. Uh, so chapter 2 is often said to be the view of these empires from man's perspective. Because man looks at these empires and sees value in them. Whereas this vision gives a view of these empires from God's perspective. He sees them as beasts. And that was truly the actual nature. We look upon, upon our nation, for example, as having intrinsic value. But I wonder how the holy God of heaven looks upon this nation. I would submit to you that he sees our nation as a beastly nation because of its, its immorality, its uh, blasphemy, its lack of respect for life. And so I think you understand that from man's perspective, nations have one set of values. From God's perspective, nations are seen entirely differently. And God sees them, all Gentile nations, as beasts. And the most ferocious one is this last one. And we'll pick that up in a moment. But the, the, the vision goes on to a second part now. For in chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, he talks about the thrones in the heavens. There's a courtroom scene here where judgment is dispensed in verses 9 through 12. The thrones are arranged, and it says, The Ancient of Days took his seats. The Ancient of Days is the judge in this scene. He is the sovereign one. He is described in terms uh, like this. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. And so this is not a typical kind of throne. Uh, and there are some wheels in connection with this throne some way. Now when you think of wheels in a vision, you undoubtedly think of Ezekiel, who had a very similar vision. What do all of these things symbolize? Well, it's telling us something about God, God's eternity, God's justice, God's holiness, are all represented here by these flames and the, the burning and the, the whiteness, the pure wool and so on. Now it says that there was a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And so this courtroom is not empty. There are thrones. The judge, who is called the Ancient of Days, comes in, takes his seat. And in the courtroom there are spectators numbered here in the thousands upon the thousands and myriads of myriads. These are undoubtedly angelic creatures that are seen. And it says the court sat, which means that the uh, court was called into session. The business at hand was about to be taken care of. It says the books were opened. These 
are books of which God records the deeds of, of people and of nations. And so judgment is about to take place based upon the infallible record of the holy God. And judgment is dealt to the beasts and to the little horn. It says, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And so judgment is dealt to this fourth beast. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. That last phrase probably means that there was an extension of the lives of those first three beasts in the fourth one, as it incorporated elements of those previous beasts. But in the end, all of them are destroyed, never again to rise. And so we have the courtroom scene, which then leads us to a scene of the second coming of Christ. Now, Daniel would not have known it this way, you understand, but this is what he saw. I kept looking in the night visions. By the way, notice he says, I kept looking, I kept looking. That phrase is used more than ten times in this chapter. So Daniel is telling us what he saw. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Notice that this is in contrast to the beasts. Here is one who is humanity. Not mere humanity, we know, but one who is truly man, the Son of Man. He was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so now we understand there are two personages here. The first one, the Ancient of Days, is a theophany. It is an appearance of God the Father in this vision to Daniel. It is still true that no man has seen God at any time. As John tells us in John 1, that is, we have never seen God in his essence, but God has appeared, such as in this vision. And God the Father is the one who is seen in these vestures earlier described with the fire coming from his throne. And now the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, comes up and is presented to him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, our friends who are all millennialists, you say, what are they? Well, those are people who do not believe in a literal earthly reign of Jesus Christ. Our friends who are all millennialists, they believe in no millennium look at this and they say, well, you know, this refers to Christ's reign in the hearts of people when they get saved. But friends, if you look at this and you intend to interpret the Bible literally, that means that when there are symbols, you seek to interpret the symbols as they should be. But when you approach the Bible literally, you take it for what it says, there is no way to read into this a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. He talks about peoples of nations in every language. They will serve him an everlasting dominion, a uh, kingdom. He is talking here about an earthly, literal kingdom that will be given to Jesus Christ. Its initial period is a thousand years. That's why we call it the millennium. 
But that's not the end of it. That's just the first period. There are some things that take place then that sort of separate out the first thousand years. But then his kingdom goes on forever and forever. And so he has uh, quite a vision here of the thrones in the heavens. He sees the judge and then he sees the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, entering into the courtroom and receiving from the one on the throne the right to rule on the earth. Well, this upsets Daniel, what he sees. He is distressed by it. He says, the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And so now we come to the final part of the chapter, the prophecy of the last days. Daniel is distressed and alarmed, and so he asks the angel for the certainty of the interpretation. Now Daniel seems to already understand what is taking place, but he wants to nail it down. And so he asks an angel to tell him exactly, for sure, what it means. And the angel does. Verse 17, we have an overview in these next two verses. These great beasts, says the angel, (coughs) which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Now even though it says kings here, they cannot be separated from their kingdom. The point is, it's talking about leaders and the empires over which they rule. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And so that's the overview. The angel says, Daniel, what you have seen are four kingdoms that will come upon the earth. And four kings. But ultimately it is the saints of the highest one who will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, for all the ages to come. Who are these saints of the Most High? Well, we can uh, understand the term saints being used in the Bible in a number of different ways. I think the best way to understand it here is to see it as representing those who are believers on the earth at that time. They will be, of course, Jews in the tribulation period, as well as multitudes of Gentiles. But there is another sense in which it includes all believers, because the Bible promises us, we who are part of the church, who will be taken out by the rapture before the tribulation, uh, and who will come back with Christ at his second coming. It promises us that we will reign with Jesus Christ. And so I think that we can take the saints here, uh, not only in a narrow sense, that is, the Jewish and Gentile believers who are alive on the earth at that time, but in its broadest sense, all of the children of God, those who have believed. Now, beginning in verse 19 and going through verse 26, there are some additional specifics given regarding the fourth beast. There's a review of the vision in verses 19 to 22, with just a slight addition to the vision. And then there's an interpretation, and that's what I want to get to, verse 23. He says, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. 
and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High. Who is the he? Well, it is the little horn, the one king who arises after the ten. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand. They here, referring probably to the saints, they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Well, let's just stop there at this point. There are several items that we want to notice and notice as quickly as we can. The first is that there is a fourth kingdom that will come. We have said before that this is Rome. Rome, which had the widest rule of any of the empires that are described. Rome, which... Uh, in biblical prophecy is seen in two separate periods of time. It is seen first as immediately succeeding Greece and reigning for hundreds of years. In fact, some commentators point out that actually parts of Rome ruled until the 15th century, the eastern part of it, the Byzantine Empire. And so for centuries upon centuries, Rome existed and was a power upon the earth. Rome was the power in Jesus' day when he was born. There was a Caesar, of course, in Rome. And it was a a fierce, uh, militaristic um, empire. It was never conquered, as has been pointed out before. It, It collapsed, it disintegrated from within, basically. And although Rome was eventually conquered in the 5th century, uh, there was never an empire that replaced it. Uh, it, Things just sort of disintegrated governmentally. The Bible indicates, I believe, that there is yet a future aspect to the Roman Empire. And what we see here is that future aspect. Rome was never described in those ancient days as ten kings. There was never another king that rose up and replaced three of them, became then the eighth and obviously the leading one of the kings of Rome. That never happened historically. I believe it is yet remaining for a future time. When we think of the Roman Empire, we think of Europe. And I believe that what we are seeing today in Europe may well be the stirring of that continent which will result in the formation of what Daniel saw in this vision. Right now the European common market is more than ten nations. But everything is in the fruit basket that's being tipped over in Europe right now. The two Germanys are talking about reunification. There may be other uh, countries that will merge or perhaps split. There's a great deal of uh, racial and ethnic division and conflict, even in some of the political countries. For example, Czechoslovakia, with its three distinct sections. And so I believe that we're going to see in Europe develop over the next 
months and years a change so that there will eventually form a confederation of nations that will number ten. And that will be a revival of the ancient Roman Empire in the form that Daniel predicted. And about the time these ten kingdoms get together, there is going to arise another king. And as a result of his emergence on the scene of the world, this king, who will come become the Antichrist, will in some way replace three of the kings. We're not told how that will happen. But by virtue of his rising up to power, three kings will be replaced, so that there will be essentially eight kings left, with Antichrist, the eighth, being the most powerful, the most influential. It is said that he will speak against God. That preposition literally says he will speak at the side of God. The picture is that he will present himself as being God's equal. Thus he will, he will pretend to be deity. And will come to the point of demanding worship. Assisting him in that will be the false prophet, who is described again in Revelation chapter 13 as Antichrist's partner. Because Antichrist, this political figure, who is, arises out of the Gentile world, this Antichrist will clothe himself with the garments, get this, of apostate Christendom. Which is described for us in Revelation chapter 18. There will be a wedding of the political power of Antichrist and the religious power of the apostate church. And the apostate church will help the Antichrist rise to power before Antichrist then turns on the church and persecutes and destroys it, its power. It is said that this king will wage war with the saints. In verse 21, he will wear them down. And so he will turn upon the true people of God and will persecute them. That is described in Revelation chapter 12 in some detail. Uh, Zechariah seems to indicate that two-thirds of the Jews in that period of time will be killed. I say it with sorrow in my heart. But the worst days for the Jewish people are yet ahead. Hitler and the Holocaust was only a preview, I am sorry to say, of what Antichrist will do to the Jewish people. Two-thirds of them will be wiped out in the tribulation period, as will many Gentiles who will not follow Antichrist, who will not receive his mark. <clears throat> Zechariah also seems to indicate that the city of Jerusalem now under Jewish control, will eventually be captured by Gentile forces. Antichrist will put into effect certain economic policies that will create economic hardship, especially for those who are believers in the true God. As Daniel tells us, that he will attempt to change both natural and moral laws. In other words, he will try to replace any 
vestige of the Judeo-Christian heritage of the Western nations. An example of this might be pointed to in what happened in the French Revolution when the leaders then, a couple of hundred years ago, attempted to create a 10-day work week rather than the 7-day work week. It did not succeed. But you see, there was an attempt to change the very timing that men have lived by through these years, since the very beginning of time, as a matter of fact, when God ordered seven days and one day of rest. It's that sort of thing that Antichrist will attempt, but he likewise will not ultimately succeed. Now the scriptures indicate that things will go his way. It doesn't say this in Daniel, but we learn from other portions of Scripture that for three and a half years, uh, this fellow will appear to be the nicest guy who's ever been born on the face of the earth. He will be charismatic. He will be intelligent. He will be brilliant. He will be a great orator. He will be a military leader par excellence. He will be able to bring together political coalitions that have been impossible He will be a gifted individual. All of this, of course, because he is empowered by Satan. But he himself will come off as the nicest guy, the kind of a guy you would want to to have as your brother or your father. But then, in the midst of uh, the tribulation period, after three and a half years, he will change entirely, and his true nature will be exposed And uh, that seems to be the period that is in view in verse 25 when it talks about a time, times, and half a time. It doesn't say whether that's a minute, an hour, a month, or a year. But as we compare Scripture with Scripture, it it seems very clear when Daniel uses the term time, he's talking about one year. Times is two more years. So that's a total of three. Then he talks about half a time, which is half a year, which is exactly one half of the entire tribulation period. Well, we've said uh, quite a bit here about Antichrist. The most important thing, however, is yet to come. And that is that Antichrist will be judged by Jesus Christ. He will not succeed, though he will be on the verge of success. Ultimately, he will be judged. It says, court will sit for judgment. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. In Revelation chapter 20, we see that the the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, this religious leader who charmed the apostate church into giving Antichrist worship, will both be cast alive into the lake of fire. They are the first two inhabitants of that eternal place of damnation and will be there alone for a thousand years before others then come to join them. But they are judged and put there for their eternal punishment. Then it says in verse 27, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so the kingdom is then given to Jesus Christ and to those who are his, and they reign in him. And so Daniel gives us quite a broad, expansive vision. Uh, 
as he records this seventh chapter of his book. It goes all the way back to when the times of the Gentiles began with, with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It takes us through successive kingdoms, through Rome. Daniel does not see the extensive age that we call the church age, the age of grace, that time in which we live now. That was not clear to him. It was not revealed to him. But he saw that fourth kingdom ultimately in the form of ten, king, ten kings, ten nations, and the rising up of the Antichrist. He saw all of that. And then the destruction of Antichrist in that fourth kingdom and all the Gentile kingdoms before it altogether. Their destruction he sees and the establishment of the kingdom of, of the Son of Man and the saints of the Most High. Now the Lord willing, next week in chapter 8, we're going to talk about another vision that Daniel had that fills us in on some details that uh, are given to us rather in, in broad sweeps in chapter 7. But as we close, I just want to ask this question. Jesus Christ, friend, is going to reign. There is no question that the dominion will be given to him, but the question is this, does Jesus Christ reign in your life tonight? Is he tonight your Lord and your Savior? You see, your well-being, not just for life, but for eternity, is at stake by your answer to that question. Make no mistake about it, one day Jesus Christ will return. Just as every detail of this book has prophetically been fulfilled, so one day everything will come to pass. Every jot, every tittle, as Jesus said, will be fulfilled. There's no doubt about that. The question is, what is my relationship, what is your relationship to this eternal God and his son, Jesus Christ, who will reign forever? And if he is not tonight reigning in your life, then don't go on living for what is soon to pass away. But live for him. Give your heart, give your life to him. And let him be the Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray together. If tonight you sense a spiritual need, if there's not a right relationship between you and God, if you're on the wrong side of this equation, you do not belong to him who will reign, but you belong to him who will be destroyed. Will you tonight change your allegiance? Will you turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust him? If I or one of our staff, one of our elders can talk with you afterward or even sometime this week, please do not hesitate to talk to us. Would you stand with me, please, as we close in prayer? And now, Father, dismiss us, I pray, with the joy of the knowledge that we have from your word. May the assurance that you are in control, even in these times, especially in these times, Fill us with great hope and anticipation. Lord, I pray that you will help us to read the newspaper, listen to the news, in light of the Word of God. Keep us from jumping to conclusions that are unwarranted, but Lord, may we be wise and understand the days in which we have been chosen to live. And may we be faithful to be the saints of the Most High in our day and represent you well and declare your gospel to a world
that is headed for judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night.